Go ahead and grab a Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to talk about water for all of life. That's the passage we're at this evening. John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can follow follow along. I'm going to read 1 through 42. John 4, 1 through 42. These are the words of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was, was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with all with you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and this, his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Oh, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? 
Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have gathered here tonight as your assembly, a congregation set apart as holy by the work of your Son. We have been set apart for the work of your kingdom, and one thing we need your Spirit to do is empower us for the task. Would that your word go forth tonight so we are nourished, equipped, and challenged by what we see contained therein. Help us, we ask. Guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight we're talking about water for all of life. And before we give a summary of the passage, I want to make sure that you have three key Old Testament passages in your mind. Because I am convinced that what John would want from us is to consider these themes in terms of how they are found in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. So if you're taking notes, these are the three passages you're going to want to write down. The first is Moses and the rock. Moses and the rock. In Numbers chapter 20, God instructs Moses to speak to a rock, and water then would come forth and give Israel a drink. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses, in his frustration, he grabs a rod and he strikes it two times. Water came forth abundantly, the text says, that's a key phrase, came forth abundantly, and Israel thus drank. The problem, however, is that Moses didn't do exactly what God had said to do. He was supposed to speak to the rock, but of course he decided he would hit it twice, two times. Because of their disobedience, Moses and Aaron, um, God would forbid Moses and Aaron from taking Israel into the promised land. Now, why is that particular thing significant? Here's why. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, that the rock that Israel drank from was Christ. The rock that Israel had drank from at that point was Christ. So what is Paul's point? These things are examples of what not to do. Don't do them. Rather than contending with God, which is um, what, we, what Meribah meant um, in Hebrew, that's, we call it the waters of Meribah. That's, the word means contention or contending. Instead of doing that, we are called then, we must instead obey God, and our task is to drink in Christ by faith because he tells us that he gives us abundant life. He gives us abundant life. Life. He's going to say the same thing in, in John 10 later on. So that's the first passage. The second passage you should consider is the broken cisterns of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, which I will read for you. Jeremiah 2, 13. For my people have committed two evils, he says. 
They have forsaken me, the fountains of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's Jeremiah 2.13. So Jeremiah the prophet, he brings to Israel and her leaders what we call a covenant lawsuit. And the charges here are pretty straightforward. The two evils are this. They had forsaken God. They had forsaken God. And in their forsaking of God, the second thing, they created their own way. Those are the two evils. When you forsake God, you're not in a position of neutrality. You do something else. Instead of worshiping God, you decide to go your own way. You create your own broken cistern. So they had rejected God, and they tried to satisfy themselves on their own terms. Um, The language here in Jeremiah basically connects to the passage in John 4 before us, as we'll see. Um, But for now, the metaphor is, is very simple. Instead of drinking in God... They had made broken cisterns, which, in an effort to collect rainwater to drink, couldn't actually hold anything because idols are empty and idols essentially leave you thirsty. That's the problem. So this is absolutely a key passage in the mind of John as he tells the story and in something Jesus was getting at, something Jesus would have been very familiar with, um, especially in light of Jesus being Jeremiah the new Jeremiah, who not only brought a covenant lawsuit at the temple, he does the same here with a woman at the well. Third passage is this, water from the temple. Water from the temple. In Ezekiel 47, which uh, Matt just read, sort of this long passage of kind of a weird vision of Ezekiel. It goes for several chapters. But in Ezekiel 47, we have this vision of the prophet Ezekiel And his vision is one of the temple. And the temple faced east, the text says, which absolutely harkens back to the Garden of Eden, which was, the garden was east of Eden. And flowing out of this temple, just like flowing out of the old temple, uh, the old, rather, the old garden, if you will, in, in Adam and Eve, flowing out of the temple is living water, rushing water, literally fresh water. And Ezekiel goes to, to one part of it, and it's ankle deep, and then he's led to another part, and it's knee deep, and then the next part would tell it it's waist deep, and after this it became deep enough where he could swim in it, of course, but then he couldn't pass through. The NASB says it was, it was um, forded, it couldn't be forded, you couldn't pass through it. Now at the end of that chapter, we're also told there in Ezekiel 47 that there are trees that are growing along the bank of this, of this river, and the leaves don't ever wither away. Oh, that winter would be done. <laughs> um, we're also said that fruit doesn't fail in, pro- in production. It's a fruitful, these are fruitful trees. And the fruit, of course, is for food, and the leaves, we're told, are for healing. Now, why, why that? Why is that even in our Bible? Well, What is this all about? The imagery is picked up by Jesus and other places and John, especially in the book of Revelation. When you read Revelation, you need to know some themes from Ezekiel. The trees are people, the nations of the world, and the leaves, we're told, bring healing to the nations. So the living spirit water that flows out of Ezekiel's temple is the living water that Jesus gives to his church and from Jesus and from his church comes water that spreads across the earth. That's how we're supposed to read Ezekiel 47. 
the, the living spirit water flows out of the church, out of the temple, the new temple. We are the new temple. And that flows into the earth. And of course, this is a flood. But this time, obviously, it's not a flood of condemnation, of justice. It's a flood of healing. Now, this is a post-millennial text, absolutely. And of course, it goes with Habakkuk, who says in Habakkuk 2, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we're talking a lot about water, which is something that will come up later in the book of John as well. So these three passages from the Older Testament come rushing forward, pun intended, comes rushing forward into our passage today where Jesus Christ meets with this nameless Samaritan woman. We don't know her name. And she becomes one of the first evangelists. And in fact, her testimony, it's interesting the the way Jesus flips our understanding of gender on its head, because not only is she the first real evangelist, um, there were women who were the first at the tomb as well, and typically the testimony of women wasn't to be considered credible in court. So Jesus flips this on its head. So let's quickly just summarize. It's a big passage. We're not going to read it again. We already did that. So hopefully you'll remember this, but we're going to summarize it. To begin, we are told that Jesus leaves for Galilee, and part of the reason he leaves for Galilee is because there's tension, and this tension is between John the Baptist, or John the Forerunner, as I prefer. There's tension between Jesus and his group and their movement, and then there's tension growing between John the Baptist and his people. And so Jesus basically heads north. There's no need to compete. They're on the same side. So he heads north, and instead of bypassing the land of Samaria, which was normal for Jews to do, they would have just went around Samaria, which was north of of Jerusalem. Um, Instead of doing that, Jesus goes right into the heart of it. He visits Jacob's well, which Jacob's well is still there today. And the text says that he was weary. Uh, We have a lot about Jesus' divinity, and we have a lot about his humanity. He was He was weary. And so what does he do? He sits on the well. The the literal Greek is he sits on the well. So the well, just think for a minute, the well would have been built up and there would have been about a five-foot circle encasing around of it. And in the middle, there would have been a hole big enough for a bucket to go down. Now, the reason that they built them like that, obviously, is so that um, children wouldn't fall in. That's a good thing that they don't. And also to keep animals out and other riffraff. Um, so Jesus is literally there, in the, in the, he's weary, he's tired, he's sitting on this casing, probably even as high as this table here, and he's sitting down, weary from the day. He's just sitting there. It's hot. Jesus is tired. He sits by the well. He doesn't have anything to get drink a drink of water with. He has no bucket. He has nothing. Some of the buckets back then, they were made in such a way where they could literally be folded up and carried. They were more portable. He has nothing. He can't get in the well. There's this huge cement encasing, if you will, uh, made out of crumbled rock and whatnot, and, and he can't get any water. He's tired. He sits there. And then something interesting happens. Here's how we should be thinking. Jesus Christ has emptied himself to the point of asking someone else to serve him. He's needy. He's human. He's tired. It's hot. Um, It's noon. John tells us in verse 6, it's the sixth hour. It's noontime, the heat of the day. 
Now this is humility. This is being low. This is serving others. But being so low in serving others, he needs someone to serve him, to help him. Now he had spent time with the highest of the highs, right, Nicodemus, and now he goes to the outcasts. Now he goes to the lowest of the lows. In fact, Jesus stooped so low that a woman, gasp, a Samaritan woman, no less, comes to him, and what does he do? He asks her for a drink. Now, in order for you to sort of sense the gravity of this situation, the two are alone, and this is a most scandalous situation. It is well known, really, a lot of these cultural cues, you've probably heard sermons on this before, it's pretty well known. Um, Jewish men were not to be alone with women, and part of the reason for this, um, in terms of being out in you know, a secluded place, part of the reason is because God's law favors the weaker vessel in cases of rape, for example, out in the fields in Deuteronomy 22, um, where no one is around and she cries out and no one can hear her. God actually holds her testimony in higher regard than even the man's testimony. God protects the weak the downtrodden, the outcast. That's built into the law of God. So this was already a no-no. Okay, It's good to avoid all appearances of evil. It's a biblical concept. Um, but they, Jesus isn't. <laughs> He's alone with her. John tells us that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is another strike against Jesus. In fact, the meaning here has to do with the vessel of, of water that is fetched. The context really goes back to the fact that to share a utensil, even a spoon, with a Samaritan would have been a huge no-no. There, there's no dealings. You don't share those types of things. So Jesus has literally shattered pretty much every social custom here in the text. She's a woman. He's a man. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. She has a bucket that he's not supposed to touch. He wants a drink from it. It's really a huge disaster, all things considered. But the fact is, however, that Judaism, we already know, needed a corrective. Jesus had gone to the temple and flipped over the place. He caused a severe disruption on the Passover, which would have been a major ordeal. Judaism needed a corrective, but guess what? The Samaritans needed a corrective. In other words, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. But something, something changes here in our passage and, and here, Jesus controls the narrative quite well. He goes straight at her. He goes straight at her in conversation. You know, if you, if you knew the gift of God, if you only knew, if you only knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you knew who I was, you'd toss your bucket aside, fall to your knees and beg for the living water that I have. But she misunderstands him, just like Nicodemus misunderstood. She has nothing to draw the water out of. A, uh, uh, Jesus has nothing to draw water out of the, this basic, most simple task, this well. So where in the world is he going to get fresh, flowing spring water? This is the, a well. The water just sits there. Jesus is telling he has river water. It's flowing and rushing. Where is he going to get that? And not only that, does Jesus think that... that think of himself as basically being better than Jacob, the one who did the hard work of making the well. 
Now, we know the story. Of course, he's greater than Jacob. He's greater than Israel. He's the new Jacob. He's the new Israel. He's the new Jeremiah. He's all those things. But she doesn't know. She misunderstands. But the principle is revealed. Jesus has living water to offer. And here she is in the heat of the day coming to get water, which was not normal custom, right? Women would typically gather water early, very early in the morning or even in the late afternoon when it was cooler. So she's basically this outcast coming to the well at this point, and she has to come back to the same well over and over and over again because she wants water that she doesn't have to keep doing that. Now, why is that important? Well, she's thirsty. She's thirsty. And Jesus says that this water, despite being you know, dug out by Jacob, this legendary hero of the faith, this water cannot satisfy you. It can't do it. Just like in Jeremiah's day, things had become so corrupted, the whole thing had been corrupted and worthless. The temple was, was worthless. It was it become a den of thieves, a den of robbers, a, a den of revolutionaries is really how we should read that. And now we're at a well, this prominent well, this historical site, it, it become worthless. She, he's thirsty, but she's really the one that's thirsty. However, though, Jesus, he's the one that has water that leaves you completely satisfied forever. And eternal life awaits and it bubbles up inside of you. This good news, this beautiful good news. And, and contamination, contamination doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside. That's why Jesus, um, remember he, in other places, he doesn't wash his hands before meals like the religious leaders insisted. That's why Jesus doesn't mind sharing a drink with a Samaritan woman. See, the pollution isn't from the outside, it's from the inside. She needs a new well dug inside of her. She needs a new well, a fresh spring dug inside of her, one that will give her eternal life, one that will never leave her thirsty, one that will satisfy her in all senses of the word. And what does she do? In response to that, well, she wants a drink, right? She wants a drink that will give her a leg up above others, right? She, she's not ready to share it with everyone else yet. She, she doesn't want to have to continue the embarrassing journey of going to this well over and over again alone in the heat of the day when no other women would be there. Something's up. But she's smart. The Samaritan woman is smart, uh, she's very inquisitive, but she's a pragmatist at this point. See, going after her heart and going after this, why does she desire this water so that she never has to return? Well, Jesus goes after her family. He says, well, go get your husband. I want him too. Go get your husband. And of course, he, he's not, not going to get involved in, in gender discussion. He's not going to get involved in ancestry discussion about Jacob. He has something different. He wants her husband, but she has none. However, she's had, we know, five husbands. And now she's living with a man who's not her husband. That's why she doesn't want to keep coming back. You see, for this woman, think in terms of biblical law. For this woman, she has no dowry, and thus she has no protection. She has no dowry, there's no, there's no protection for her, and thus she has no hope. She's a woman of, of, she's vulnerable, and her life is an absolute disaster at this point. 
So, so here's how we should think of this, and when we read a passage like this, she has hit rock bottom, and she has nowhere to go. See, feeling shame, though, deep inside, she sees that Jesus, a prophet, who could know this about her? Five husbands. Who could possibly tell that information? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. See, despite what most commentators say, and I read a couple this week just because I was curious, and most commentators say that she's uncomfortable, so she's just changing the subject to start talking about mountains, on this mountain, that mountain. But I don't think that's the case. She wants answers. She wants answers. Here's the reality of what happened and what's transpiring during this discussion. The living water was washing over her, right? It was washing over her, and this washing was exposing the false roots that had held her in bondage. That's what we should be thinking. Jesus was washing her with the word, right? And, and now there's, there's an exposing that's happened. How deep is this tree? How deep are the roots? Are the roots in Christ? Are they in humanism? Are they in something else? And by the way, as a quick aside, I believe absolutely that's what Paul has in mind to some degree in Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands and wives, but he's talking about Jesus loving his bride and seeing to it that the word washes over her. Because when the word of God saturates us, when it washes over us, when we are grounded in its truth and we live our lives anchored in its truth, all the false stuff gets exposed. Sort of the whole walk, we walk in the light as, as he is in the light. So sure, she wanted to change the subject, I guess, to some degree, but she wanted to change the subject to talk about mountains because her sin was being revealed. She was exposed before the Lord of glory. But the logical question when a prophet have, reveals your sin to you, the logical question after this is to say, okay then, okay, then where do I go? If you're a prophet, where do I go to get forgiveness? Which mercy seat do I have to go to, to to alleviate and atone for my sin? You see my sin, where's my Savior? Which mountain, in other words, shall I ascend to receive forgiveness? You Jews say to go over there. We, we go over here. You tell me, Mr. Prophet, then where do I find forgiveness? And Jesus helps reveal to her something decisive, something that she will understand. See, he, he just left Jerusalem, and one thing he knows is that place is entirely derelict. Jesus declares, basically, mo both mountains are inoperable and they are obsolete. Neither place will suffice anymore. See, keep in mind, again, he just left Jerusalem, and what did he do in the temple? He tossed the tables, made a court of whips, drove everybody out, seized all Passover activity for a moment in time, foreshadowing the temple's destruction. That is no small thing. He is a prophet who is acting as the new high priest, too. You don't go to the temple for the sacrifice. That's changed. You go to where true forgiveness comes, ultimate forgiveness, eternal life comes, and that's in him, in Christ. So not only, will not, not only will those places not suffice, the only thing she needs is what he has. 
God isn't looking for worshipers who only care about a location, only about an empty place, which can easily be commandeered by self-righteous humanists and idolaters. No, God wants worshipers. That is true. But he wants worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, who worship with the entirety of their lives. We'll come back to that shortly. Now, she responds in verse 25 that she knows the Messiah will come. Everybody knew that. The Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to reveal these things. And Jesus says in Greek, it's ego, I, me. I am. I am. The person you're talking about, that's me. I am. See, this is the grand reveal. And it's the Holy Spirit working in and through Christ himself who reveals to her the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who we're talking about. He is revealing these things to her. And long before Peter confesses it, what happens? A Samaritan woman whose name we do not know sees it and she confesses it. See, Nicodemus wasn't clear on Jesus when? At night. Judas left the upper room after the foot washing when? At night. Annas, the high priest, put Jesus on trial. When? At nighttime. Peter denied Jesus. When? At nighttime. The Samaritan woman meets Jesus at noon in the middle of the day, and she gets it. This is no small thing. See, at this point, the disciples, they come back. They're back from their trip to gather food, and they ask what's going on. And then we read this in verse 28. So the woman left, the woman left her water pot and went into the city. To do what? To tell everyone something persuasive about this man that she just met. Now, don't miss the detail. John is great at putting details in there for a reason. She left the bucket there, which could have been stolen, could have been lost. She left the bucket there. That's not there by accident. The woman who came thirsty, encountered the living water, left her jar, and ran with her thirst quenched forever. See, there is no longer a need for broken cisterns. These, these false religions that we like to cook up and, and, and put into place to supplant the triune God. There, there is Christ Jesus, and friends, he's enough. He is enough. He's the gift of God who stood before her. Long before covenant is ever understood in a book, covenant is found in a person. Jesus, the living water. Now, at this point, the Samaritan people are coming out, and while the people are coming to him, the disciples want Jesus to eat something. They knew he was hungry. They knew he was wearied from the travel. They knew he was tired, so they went to get food. Jesus, you need to eat this. And then what happens? He does it again. He plays the cryptic card that he did with the woman, that he did with Nicodemus. Jesus loves tricking people, I guess. It's a teaching moment. But he, 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 they say, Jesus, eat this. And then he says, I have food that you don't know about. <laughs> like he's carrying a loaf of bread in his pocket, and they just had no idea. See, the irony is palpable here. The irony is palpable. She's been renewed, but they don't know it yet. His food, he says, is God's will. His food is doing God's work. Now, his food, listen carefully, is about to be brought to him, the real food, 
The food isn't what the disciples brought. The food is the harvest that's coming down the hill. See, he just planted a seed in the woman's heart. And now, that's why he's talking about reaping and sowing. Now, now he's reaping this immediate harvest before their very eyes. That's the food. That's the food that he, he's doing. That, the real food is the harvest. See, they haven't sowed anything at this point. The disciples are just fumbling around still. They haven't sowed anything at this point. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He invites them into the harvest, into the feast. Come, eat. Look at this meal we have before us. When I think about what, Brother Chris, when you prayed, those prayers, were po- it was powerful. When you think about what the state of our nation and just the, the nonsense that's going on, we can't be discouraged. We have them right where we want them. They, they are never going to get away now. They are there. The harvest is there. And either the church is going to repent and wake up and participate in this, or Jesus is going to bypass the church He's going to do the same thing with the institutional church that he did with the temple. He's going to start shutting these places down because they're worshiping themselves. They're idolaters. They don't care about justice. They don't care about mercy. The harvest is there. We know that the pagans have taken over the hen house. We get that. We see it on television. It's, it's all over the place. Our, our political system is, is hogwash at this point. But they're right where we want them right next to us, within ears distance, to hear the gospel and be transformed. See, what's beautiful about this passage is the very end here, when many, many of the Samaritans believed, we're told. Many of the Samaritans believed on Jesus. And so Jesus' detour into Samaria turns into this two-day stay. You're not supposed to go there. Now he's there for two days. They believed on him and they confessed in verse 42 that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Now listen to this from the 4th century. Ephraim the Syrian, Syrian was a, a Syrian theologian. We, we think of Syria today as just a war zone. There's a lot of history. Ephraim, Ephraim was a, 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 um, a theologian from the 4th century. Listen to what he says. He says, at the beginning of the conversation, he, Jesus, did not make himself known to her, but first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, and last of all, a Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she then adored the Christ. End quote. What a beautiful story. We have narratives in the Gospels that are so short, this one is 42 verses long. It's important. See, what we have here in this passage is an important look at what it means to be on mission with God. When we consider the three passages that I mentioned at the very beginning, and then we tie them together with this story, we see that God is very much concerned with making worshipers out of men and women all across the globe. Revelation 21.6 says this, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of the water of life without cost. See, part of what it means to be a worshiper of the Father, and, and the Father is seeking worshipers, part of what it means 
to be a worship of the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, is to drink of the water that is freely offered. We must drink of this water that is freely offered. The, the gospel is freely offered, and it's to be freely dispensed. Worshippers of God, what we call the ecclesia, the church of God, we are supposed to be dispensers of the living water. That's our task. And it's very obvious now that we have a bunch of churches that are stagnant in this pursuit. They are no better than Jacob's well. It's broken cistern after broken cistern. But that's our task. That's our calling to be dispensers of living water. That's the mission of God. That's the mission of the church. You might say we're fire hydrants of grace, and they're supposed to be turned on. I remember living in Philly, and when it was hot, they would turn on the fire hydrants, and all the kids would play in it. And then you see one little kid try to drink from it, and it's coming out hot, you know, and, you know, they get swept away. That's God's grace. That's his grace. And central to this mission is what we're going to learn later on in John 7, verses 37 to 39. And it says this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for he... He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not been, yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is living water? The Holy Spirit. The whole purpose of the story of the woman at the well is to demonstrate tangibly what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus, who didn't understand, namely, that being born again is like drinking living water, the rushing water of the Holy Spirit. When, when Christ takes hold of us, we are then nourished. When Christ takes hold of us, we have real sustained nourishment. And this is because the Holy Spirit apprehends the entirety of our being. The Holy Spirit wants every single inch of you, every single ounce of you, whatever term of measurement you want to use, the Spirit wants it all. He wants it all. And this arresting of the body and the soul is to be proclaimed in all the world. Last week, I had a conversation for about 20 minutes with this man at George Mason, and he was angry. He was so angry that we would dare show a sign, which wasn't even a graphic sign, it was a, a seven-week-old fetus. He was angry about it. And clearly, he's mad about something else. And, and he kept wanting to go down these, all these rapid trails, but by God's grace, he left being angry about the Holy Spirit. I believe he was convicted. But that's our task, is to plant the seeds. Our task is to proclaim this message, to, to not get fumbled up in all these things, these endless genealogical discussions, Paul says, our task is to proclaim. You see, when the Word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, God's tabernacle was here. His glory was on display for all to see. God is here. He is here. And He has the water spirit that flows out of Ezekiel's temple, which goes into the world. And the way that it goes into the world is through worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Listen, when men and women acknowledge and live in service of the covenant Lord in every area of life, living water is poured out and the world is washed clean. 
When men and women acknowledge and live in service of the covenant Lord in every single area of life, living water is poured out. The world is then washed clean. And that's just how it's supposed to be. That's a feature of the covenant. See, the water that Christ gives his people, that is the Holy Spirit, is meant to refresh us. It's meant to refresh the soul to the point that it then spills over the banks of the river into the refreshment of other people. See, living, living water is meant to rush out of us into the world. And what happens when the church withholds the water? What happens when we refuse to be a conduit of the, the living water? You know, sure, the world gets stale and murky and stagnant. Yeah, we know that. But guess what? So do we. And, and some of you may be fighting that even in your own personal life. A feeling of stagnation, a feeling of murkiness, a feeling of staleness. Because you've neglected the living water inside of you, the Holy Spirit. But when that happens, though, what we do is we begin hewing broken cisterns, and then we think things are quite all right. And then the culture around us slips into debauchery and decay, and the legislation continues to get passed in the opposite direction of protecting the preborn. And then we stop, and the church can't even see the connection. I mean, I've heard of people, you know, they'll say things like, well, we're glad that this law passed because the church is waking up. The church is not waking up because abortion mill sidewalks are still closed, are, are still open because we don't have men who fear God rise, raised up to, to promote legislation that's godly and honoring. We get mad for a day because of the thing we see on the media and then we go about our lives and we don't care. It's not repentance. Repentance bears fruit. See, the, the hedonistic impulse of our day is nothing but hewing of broken, broken cisterns. That's what it is. But however, what we know, must know is that hedonism does not have an endless supply of resources. At the end of the day, the tank goes completely empty, and all you have is despondency and pride. The Samaritan woman was this person. She was the least of the least. She had run out of hope. She had run out of godly ambition. She had run out of the desire to get out of bed and face the day. She had run out of a desire to see other people. She had to go in the middle of the day. She was tired of it all. The baggage of her life had overwhelmed her. She had become dry. And yet what does the gospel message teach us? Does not our Lord teach us that in this kingdom the last shall be first? We had a discussion about that in our household this week about who wanted, dad was making leftover spaghetti and we, who wanted the spaghetti first? And whoever said they wanted it first, they get it last. That's the nature of the kingdom. Those who clamor to be first will be last. See, the first evangelist was the lowest of the low, de decreased so far down, it looked like there was absolutely no hope for her. She, for all intents and purposes, had no possible way out of this mess. And yet God in Christ raised her up. She was raised to new life, and then she was sent to proclaim the very same thing. And the fact that we have to, think about this, the fact that every day we have to eat and drink, every single day, that fact points to the reality that we need something more. We need something more, something that will sustain us forever. And what is it? It's the living water. Now, one final observation. When Jesus says that the Father wants 
worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth go together just like law and gospel go together. See, spirit means that we do things in terms of the nature and character of God. I think this, this is misunderstood. When we do worship in spirit, it doesn't mean, oh, you know, we hide in our prayer closet and pray all day, which you can do that and it's good. But that's not exactly what it means. To, to worship in spirit means to be consistent with the spirit of God, to be consistent with the character of God, the nature of God. God is a spirit. And we know from Solomon all the way back in 2 Kings that God does not, he can't dwell um, solely and be contained within temples that are made by human hands. And this means that all of life then is to be us moving and building and planting and sustaining fountains of living water for the world to partake of. And so why does Jesus link spirit and truth together? Well, part of the reason is because she was mistaken about the mountain situation. Salvation is not from a mountain, but salvation is from the Jews. She didn't know that. Jesus was a Jew. But on the other, side, the other reason, I believe, has to do with the fact that Jesus will later pray for the Spirit to lead his people into all truth. See, see when we abandon the defunct and obsolete temples which have been hijacked by humanists and, and self-worshippers, when we, when we reject that and abandon that, we are brought into the realm of God's Spirit and God's truth. That's why they go together. We align with God's truth, and, and, and we are more and more and more growing up into this truth, into this living water. The bubbles burst up inside of us and grow and grow. In Ezekiel's temple, the water then fills the entire world, and that's why Jesus is recognized as the Savior of the world. Listen, and I'm going to end with this. Just 10 miles from Jacob's well, 10 miles from there, Herod had built this ginormous statue to Caesar Augustus. Herod was a man-pleaser, and he wanted to please the... So these Samaritans saw the Savior of the world every day. They would have seen it. They would have known it. That's the Savior of the world, Augustus Caesar. He's the Savior of the world. And here's Jesus standing right there, standing before her, offering her the truth that he's the true Savior of the world. He's the true Savior who will be this great gift of water for all of life. Let's pray. Father... Um, we bow before you, humbled by this passage. We are humbled because the gospel is for the low, and yet sometimes we think ourselves to be quite high. The gospel is for the weak, and yet sometimes we think ourselves to be really, really strong. The gospel is for the weak, and yet there are times when we are, frankly, just prideful. The gospel of the kingdom is for those who would decrease so that Christ would increase, and oftentimes... We just have this entirely backwards. Would your spirit give us this water afresh and would we ourselves be washed in him? And then would we go and wash the world with the word of God so that you would be honored and nations would glorify you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.